Welcome back, friends. Thanks for joining us this morning. Today, we're going to take a a small break from our Matthew series, and we're going to look at Psalm 126. So if you will, just open up your Bibles to Psalm 126, and I'll just read it briefly for us. Psalm 126. A song of ascents. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter, and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like the streams of the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. If you will, just take a moment just to pray and ask God to prepare your heart. I know there's many of you that are watching this, that are going through lots of different things. And my prayer is is that as we're going through this, that you will receive the hope of restoration, the hope of redemption in Jesus, and just let it wash over your sufferings today. And so let's just pray to that end and pray that God will, will use this text to heal our wounds, to heal our hearts, to open our minds, to transform us more into, into the image of Christ as we continue to faithfully trust in Him. Let's pray. Father God, when I think about the trouble that so many people who are watching this are in, when I think about the job losses, the tragedies, the lost loved ones, the widowhoods, the, the barrenness, Father. When I think of the heartache, the fears, the turmoil in the families. God, I can do nothing more but to thrust myself onto Psalm 126. To put my hope fully on the foundation of the redemption that you're bringing in Jesus. And Father, I ask that you will use me as a poor and weak communicator, Father, to use your Holy Spirit to extend your peace and your restoration to those who are listening, to those who need hope, to those who need peace in the middle of the battle, for those who need an anchor in the storm. Father, I pray that this text will just sweep over them with peace and comfort from your own throne, Father. God, we love you, and we pray this in your Son's name. Amen. The man looks across the field. His shirt is drenched with sweat. His hands are cracked and calloused. His skin is reddened by the sun's heat. His back aches, his breath heaves, and his muscles cramp. When everyone else is still asleep in bed, he is rising with the morning sun. Long after everyone else is packed up to go home, he is still finishing his task. He is a farmer. He has been his entire life, and he's used to working. The hardships of breaking the ground, cultivating the soil, planting the seeds, watering the dry ground, chasing away the animals that try to eat the bulbs that sprout underneath, have all become like a second nature to him. And I think, without a doubt, we would all say that farming is back-breaking work. Perhaps you had a father or a grandfather, maybe you know someone who lives out in the country, and maybe they have a ranch or they have a farm, and you know that it's just back-breaking, grueling work, hard work. And the question is, why would anyone willingly endure that kind of hard work? Well, if you ask the farmer, he'll tell you he does it for the harvest to come. It's interesting that one of the chosen metaphors that Scripture uses to describe suffering, hardship, and even death is that of farming or sowing seeds. One example that comes to mind is Paul's exhortation to the Galatians to keep sowing, to keep doing good even in hardship. And the reason he tells them, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Later he encourages Timothy, who is embattled in the ministry, who's going through all kinds of hardship in Ephesus, who is facing persecution without and facing turmoil within the church. And he tells Timothy to keep going, to endure, to do the work of a good farmer, to be a hardworking farmer who sows faithfully in order to have his share in the crops at the right time. And it's not just the New Testament that describes suffering and hardship in terms of farming or, 
or sowing seed. It's Psalm 126 as well in the Old Testament. Psalm 126 is a particularly beautiful psalm that reminds us that we are God's people who faithfully sow in the soil of suffering. And we wait for a harvest of redemption. Now, there's some of you that are watching this that haven't been acquainted with our church. And for those of you that are in our church, you know that the last five years have been years of incredibly unique suffering. Now, I don't think our church is unique in that it's suffering. I I think uh, there are people all over the country and churches all over the world who are suffering in ways we could hardly imagine. Churches in China and Iran and different places like that that are suffering. But we as a body have endured some unique suffering that is unique to us as Grace Church. We've uh, been through the death of many beloved and irreplaceable friends and families, many of them pillars in this church. We've been through job losses, suicides. We've been through uh, incredible pain. And now we're going through the inglorious uh, ramifications of COVID-19. And this last week, little Myla Harp was put back on hospice. Most of you know her story, and if you don't know her story, you can go to Myla's Miracle on Facebook and catch up on that story. You can call us at the church. We'd happily tell you the testimony that has been there. But little Myla has been placed on hospice, and her whole family, as we know, has been enduring incredible, unimaginable, heart-wrenching suffering for over a year and a half. They have worked hard at taking care of her suctioning her airway, giving her medicines, making her as comfortable as possible, proclaiming the gospel to others even when it hurts, and sharing in, the, in their raw testimony, in their raw feelings of, of, of hardship and pain in hopes that others would follow Jesus even when it's hard because of their testimony, because of their story. They have ached and wept over their daughter day and night. It has become like a second nature to them. It's incredibly spiritually, emotionally backbreaking, grueling work. Why do they do it? Well, they do it because there's a harvest to come. Because Myla Harp has been such an important part of our life as a church, because this sweet little girl has herself, in just the few years that she's been alive, has become a pillar and a a core identity of our church as we have looked to her parents and looked to her as a story of redemption, as a story of God working sovereignly in the midst of pain. Because Mila is so important to us, I thought it was good for us to take a break from Matthew and just to stop and pause and linger in Psalm 126 today. I thought it would be good for us in the midst of COVID, in the midst of job losses, in the midst of hardships and the things that are going on in our church. Just to, just to stop and, and listen to Psalm 126 as it calls us to be faithful, suffering farmers. Farmers who work and weep, trusting that a harvest of restoration is still to come. As we will see, I hope, from this psalm, because our hope is in Jesus, every tear that we cry becomes like a seed. Our tears are not wasted. They are planted into the soil of suffering, and in due time they will lead to a harvest of joy. This is the promise that we have because of the gospel that is in Jesus Christ, the gospel that Christ has come to give us through his death and resurrection. Weeping will give way to singing. Mourning will give way to shouts of joy. And because of this hope, we endure suffering and prayerfully look forward to the promises of God to come. Well, as we approach Psalm 126, I think it helps to consider the author's context in which he wrote this song. There's no prescript. It doesn't tell us who wrote this psalm. We don't know if it was Solomon or if it was David or if it was someone else. We don't, we don't know the particular name of who it was. But there's some indication in the Song of Ascent uh, that this author was someone who had indeed experienced great suffering in Israel's day. We are only told that it is a Song of Ascent, which puts it in a genre of songs, really song, Psalm 120 to Psalm 134, that were sung on pilgrimages to Jerusalem during festival times, during uh, great times of feasting. 
These psalms were meant to stir up the pilgrims to worship as they traveled closer to the holy city. So they would set off on their journey. It would be dry and hot and, and, and a very difficult travel to the holy city. And yet they would sing these songs knowing that at some point they would reach their destination. And when they reached Jerusalem, joy would be restored. It's almost a picture of life, isn't it? In life, we're in this very difficult journey. We're going through all the hardships. We're going through deserts. We're going through uh, thieve-infested caverns and and canyons. We're going through uh, areas in life that that cause us to stumble and trip and to hurt and and, and cry out in pain. And yet, we keep marching, singing these songs, knowing that someday Jerusalem will come over the horizon and then joy will be restored. Some scholars argue that when they came to Jerusalem, they continued singing these songs as they ascended the steps into the temple, which is very possible and seems likely. By and large, I think if you look at this whole section of Psalms, you see that they paint a picture of Zion as a center of blessing and of restoration. It's from here that God sends out His love and gracious blessing to His people. It's from Zion that God sends out restoration and redemption. Psalm 134.3 is an example of this. As the psalmist prays for God's blessing to come explicitly from Zion. It's the place where God meets with His people. It's the place where people can come and pray to the Lord. It's the place where people can come, fall on their knees. And after this long, arduous arduous journey, the sight of Zion, the thought of Zion, rekindles hope. So in this light, we should see Zion as the place where tired and mourning pilgrims set their hearts in hopes of renewal. It's the goal, the destination the final hope. What makes Psalm 126 special among these songs is that it was most likely written after or during the exile, which was a time of intense, deep sorrow. The temple had been destroyed. Thousands of people in Jerusalem had been uh, slaughtered. And the survivors, anyone that remained, were carted off to Babylon, where they were marginalized, where they were kept in fear. Psalm 137, if you just turn ahead a a few pages, you'll find out, just kind of, you'll see a depiction of what this was like. In Psalm 137, it shows the people of God weeping by the rivers of Babylon. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there, we hung our lyres. Now, just imagine for a moment, some of you don't have to imagine, some of you know this by experience. Being so broken that all you can do is sit down and weep. Just to stop where you're at. Just to not to be able to move around anymore. Not to be able to do your tasks. Not to carry on through your day. But just to, just to stop and sit down and weep. You hang your harps, your lyres, any instrument that you have played in joy. Thinking that you will no longer have any reason to sing. Some of you have buried loved ones and are not able to sing and joy anymore. It just brings mourning to your heart to think that there will ever be a day that you could sing again. Now, every person who was sitting on the banks of Babylon's waters had either lost a loved one, a friend, they had lost their job, they lost their homes, they watched their homes be burnt up and ruined, they had lost their security. Some of them had lost children, some lost spouses, some lost parents. It's almost as if the entire nation of Judah had been reduced to a funeral procession in one fell swoop. Now, whoever wrote Psalm 126 had unique personal experience with Judah's mourning. They had either personally witnessed it, they had personally suffered in it, they knew people who were suffering. And so when this psalmist puts pen to paper, he's writing in the context of knowing that his people have gone through an incredible heartbreaking reality that Zion and the place where they met with God laid in ruins, that his people were in the captivity of suffering, that his people were hurting, that his people had bled, that his people had died, that his people were broken. Now in this light... 
Psalm 126 is a song of an exile. It is a song written for those who know what it is like to mourn. Those who know what it is like to have lost. It is written for those of you that have lost people and things that you desperately wish you had back. The psalm interjects into your grief. And it gives you hope for restoration. Now notice as we go through the song, it doesn't, it doesn't tell you to stop weeping. It doesn't tell you to, to, to stop crying and to move on. It doesn't, it doesn't tell you just to stop mourning and now be happy and pretend like everything's okay. It doesn't tell you that the most faithful thing to do is put a smile on your face and, and just carry on with life. It doesn't do any of that. Instead, it reminds us that as we weep, as we mourn, that, that there will, will be a day we will sing again. It actually gives us permission to mourn. It gives us permission to grieve. And yet, as we see in First Thessalonians 4.13, it reminds us that we grieve, but we do not grieve as those who have no hope. We are those who grieve with hope. We are those who grieve in faith. We are those who weep knowing that joy will be restored for us. So my friends, you may be someone who's just languishing in this time. I know Nick and Brittany have cried and cried and cried and prayed and held Myla's hand. I know Teresa and Phil have wept and, and prayed and with, with deep languishing souls. I know Iris and Richie have been heartbroken over this whole thing. Whole thing. I know that every aunt and uncle that has come into that house, every friend that has stepped in, to that reality, knows just how heartbreaking that that whole story is. And yet Psalm 126 reminds us that the story is not finished. Mila has been through an incredible tragedy, and yet even tragedies can end in joy when God intervenes. Now as we look at the psalm, it's kind of difficult to, to understand how exactly the psalmist is structuring the song. A lot of psalms have like a chiasm or maybe they have a few stanzas that kind of help you to track the structure well. This psalm is actually a little more difficult to track the structure. In verses one through three, he speaks of restoration as something that has already come. And yet in verses four through six, he prays for a a future restoration that seems to not have arrived yet. It is possible that verses one through three could be speaking of a partial restoration when the Judean captives were allowed to return home. Despite being allowed to turn, return home, however, despite being allowed to return back to Jerusalem and to rebuild their walls and rebuild their temple, they still don't have that full restoration yet. They don't have the, the full promises that God has given through the prophets. The, the mountains aren't dripping with wine, for example, according to Amos. The, the Davidic shepherd king has not yet come and has not yet reigned over his people and brought them back from sin and death. So they have a partial restoration, and yet there is a full and final restoration yet to come. And in this we hear this now and not yet reality of redemption. It's something that we as Christians understand well. We too, like the psalmist of Psalm 126, live in a now and not yet restoration. We live in a restoration that has been accomplished in part because of Christ and because of what he has accomplished on the cross and in the resurrection. And yet we also have a restoration that is still to come. We still suffer We've been set free from sin. We've been forgiven of all of our sins. We've been given life with Christ. And yet, we are still suffering under the hardship of death. We are still suffering under the hardships of of things like children dying, of, of racism, of oppression, of job losses, of living in all sorts of consequences in this fall. And so as believers, we live at home in Psalm 126. We live in the full reality of a partial restoration that has been bought in Jesus and yet in the hope of a full restoration to come. 
So this psalm, though it's written in the Old Testament, though it's written in Hebrew, belongs to us. Belongs to us as people who are exiles, as people who are sojourners and strangers. The song begins, When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. The word fortunes in our modern understanding has the connotation of wealth or prosperity. And yet, that does not seem to be what the psalmist is actually speaking about here. The, the word fortunes can also mean restoration. Literally translated, it would, be, it would be rendered in this way. When the Lord restored the restoration of Zion. Now the psalmist has in mind the day when the Lord brought his people out of captivity. When the, when the uh, proclamation was made by Cyrus. Whoever is among you of all this people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. In Second Chronicles 36.23. It was like a second exodus. They had been living in, living in this foreign land where they had been oppressed, where they had faced martyrdom, where they had faced all kinds of hatred from the nations around them, where they had been mocked. And yet they hear the amazing words, just like they heard back in Exodus, go up, leave. And now they're able to go up from this place. It was almost too good to be true, which is why the psalmist says we were like those who dream. Now, the result of their restoration was twofold. He says, Then our mouth was filled with laughter, and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, The Lord has done great things for them. So we see first that restoration has brought back joy. Restoration has made them glad again. While they had been sitting next to the waters of Babylon weeping, they were now able to laugh again. They had hung their harps on the willows, thinking they would never again sing, but now their tongues were filled with joyful singing. And not only was their laughter and singing restored, but the nations personally witnessed the goodness of God toward them. The nations, the very nations that had mocked them, the nations that had said, look at what God did to them, look at how the Lord destroyed their city. Now the nations are saying, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord who, who brought judgment on them has brought restoration. The Lord who allowed them sovereignly to go off into captivity has now brought them home. So according to the psalmist, restoration was given for Judah's good and for God's glory. In fact, the two went hand in hand. God's desire for glory led him to restore his people. The restoration of his people led to his glory. It's amazing. My friends, God has promised to give us a restoration. It's a promise to do us good. One of these days, death will go away. We have the good promises of God. And He wants our good in them. And yet, He is also working for His glory. Our good and His glory are mingled together as the people of God. God works simultaneously for both things, for those who trust in Him. And yet with all this joy that the psalmist sees, with all this mirth as the people are dancing, as they're playing on cymbals again, as they're playing their harps and singing, as they're marching slowly back to Jerusalem, as they're watching the walls go up, it's important for the psalmist to remember the source of the joy. Why was the psalmist glad? Why does he say that they are happy and singing again? They're not laughing and singing merely because they're allowed to go home. They're not laughing and singing again merely because they're allowed to, to, uh, to go back and rebuild the walls and to rebuild the temple. It's not just the proclamation of Cyrus that has made them glad. No, it's explicitly because the Lord has done great things for them. The psalmist knows That the transition out of captivity into freedom, out of weeping at the waters of Babylon, to singing, out of the mocking taunts of the nations, to the nations praising Yahweh as the one who has done great things for his people. He knows that all of those things come only because of the Lord who does great things for his people. As Christians, we have received an even better experience of restoration. The people 
of Judah were brought out of Babylon and into the promised land. And if you know the story, they come into the promised land. They endure still all kinds of other hardships. They return back into sin. Later, they're conquered by the Greeks. And then later on, they're conquered by the Romans. And then later on, the second temple is destroyed and Jerusalem is laid to waste again. And yet, what we have received is something that's imperishable, something that is unbreakable. We have received a transition not out of Babylon to the promised land, but out of the domain of darkness and into the marvelous light of the Son of God. We have been rescued from the slavery of sin and death, and we have been led into the green pastures and still waters of reconciliation with God. What the people of Judah had in part we have to an even greater extent in Jesus, our Savior. The grace that has been granted to us in Jesus, if you think about it, almost feels too good to be true. To be told that every sin that we have done, every transgression that we have committed, every rebellion that we have done against the, against the, the holy God of the universe, to be told that all of those things are wiped away clean at the blood of Jesus. To be told that we don't have to fear death because of the resurrection of Jesus. That's almost too good to be true. We are the ones who can say even better than the psalmist did. When the Lord restored us from the fall, when the Lord restored us from the domain of darkness, when the Lord restored us from the death of our transgressions and sins in which we once laid, we were like those who dream. Our mouth was filled with laughter. Our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. And we say this now because the Lord has done great things for us in Christ. And we have become glad. So verses 1 through 3 look back on the restoration that has begun. But verses 4 through 6 prayerfully prayerfully look forward to the full and final restoration that is yet to come. I can almost hear the groan in the psalmist's voice as he thinks on all the brokenness that remains. Restore our fortunes or restore our restoration, O Lord, like the streams in the Negev. Now you might ask, what more could this dude want? They've been given a new start. They've been given a free to go home. They can go on to build their, their city walls again and their second temple. They, what more does he want? What restoration is left? Well, yes, they were able to go home. Restoration had begun. And yet, the restoration had not completely come. They're still waiting on their Davidic king. They're still waiting for the promised land to become like an Eden-like paradise, which had not happened when they returned. In fact, you read Ezra and Nehemiah. Ezra and Nehemiah themselves proclaim that the people are still slaves. And implicit in that is that they're still slaves to sin because they continue doing wrong. They continue sinning against the Lord. They're still a broken people. Their enemies were still at large. The scars of captivity had not disappeared. The char marks on the stone were still there. Loved ones had still died and were still dying. Poverty and oppression were still plaguing God's people. People were selling each other into slavery. People were ignoring a relationship with God. Sin was a lingering stench in their nostrils. And so the psalmist looks forward to a full restoration that is more than just simply coming back home. More than just simply being let loose from captivity. The psalmist sees God's coming restoration as streams springing forth in the dry deserts of the Negev. Those in suffering understand the feeling of living in a desert well, I think. A lot of people, when they, when they get in the midst of their suffering, in the midst of their loss, you hear them talking about how, how it feels like they're thirsty or it feels like they're dry. The, the scorching heat of suffering has bored down on them. In the Negev, the sparse vegetation doesn't give any kind of shady relief. There's no water, uh, there's no rivers and, and streams to dip one's hot and sweaty head into to cool off and be refreshed. There's, there's no place to dip a cup and, and, and get you a nice, sweet drink of spring water. 
Over the last last few weeks, several of you have felt that kind of thirst well. You know what that's like. To be laying in bed in the middle of the night and to have this thirst that just continues to present itself. To be thinking on the people in our church that are suffering is, is, is almost like walking in the middle, middle of a desert with the dry hot sun beaming down. We've had friends that have lost their jobs because of COVID-19 and because of layoffs. We've had people put on furlough. We've had people who have, are facing health problems. We have a church member who is in the hospital right now because of heart problems. We have people who are going through all kinds of discomforting diseases and sicknesses and autoimmune disease. And still, there are many of us that are fearing the virus and the ongoing ramifications that may come from it. There are people who are afraid that more layoffs are to come. There are people who are afraid that the virus is going to mutate and and grow worse. Life for many of us right now definitely feels like an endless, waterless desert. The psalmist prays when he thinks about that desert. He prays that God will make streams flow in the desert. Again, it may sound like a dream. He may be like a dreamer, like he just talked about. To, to think of someone walking through a desert and to be refreshed by cool brooks, by cool rivers, for the desert to be renewed by rivers. That that's just seems unfathomable. It seems like something that's impossible. And yet, this, that's how the psalmist views his forthcoming restoration. Only God can do something like that. And only God can restore his foreign people. Only God can make springs sprout and, and springs flow in the dry and barren desert. By him and him alone, Everything tragic, everything unjust, everything corrupt, everything racist, everything sinful, everything violent, everything mournful will be undone. All bad, sad things will become untrue. Every scar of the curse will disappear. Deserts will flow with rivers. When I think about how sweet that sounds, like streams in the Negev, I think of how the psalmist is modeling for us how to pray through our residual suffering that we still endure. Even after experiencing the beginnings of restoration through our reconciliation with God, we have been brought out of captivity, we have brought into a relationship that cannot be shaken, that cannot be ended, but yet we still as God's people continue to long for a life completely free from brokenness, completely free from temptation, completely free from oppression of this world. We pray for our deserts to become Edenic paradises once again. We have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. And as Christians, we are longing to taste that sweetness even more, to taste it fully, to have it permanently. And I think as believers, we should pray to that end. We should pray for Jesus to come back. We should pray for Jesus to turn back every reminder of the curse, to push out every curse, to build a new world when he returns. We should be praying for the full and final restoration. We should be praying for fountains to flood the deserts of those of us who are suffering even if we're not going through something, we should long for God to, to cause fountainheads to be springing forth in the deserts of other suffering. But what do we do in the meantime as we're praying those things? Some of us have prayed day and night that God would do just that, that God would bring restoration, that God would send His Son and that He would end death and that He would end pain and that He would end tears. What do we do until that time comes? What do we do when, in the midst when we just seem to, we, we wake up, we pray for God to send streams in the desert. We go through our day and we can't seem to get out of the desert. And so we pray again, God, send streams in the desert. We go to bed and the desert's still there. And we pray that God sends streams in the desert. We wake up the next day and we pray all over again. What do we do when we're in that kind of cycle of praying? In the midst of our suffering and in the hope of our future restoration, 
what should we be mindful of? The psalmist answers in verses 5 through 6, Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing. In, in the actual Hebrew, it sounds like he who goes out bearing the seed bag shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. This is a beautiful way to describe suffering. The way he speaks about our tears and pain brings hope to even the darkest, bitterest night. According to this writer, who is inspired by the Spirit of God himself, who is writing God's word, he says that the tears of God's people are never wasted. They are like seeds planted in the soil of suffering. And in the end, the harvest is joy. I find this incredibly comforting. For us, suffering is not without a purpose. For us, suffering is not ineffectual. For us, our weeping is not forgotten. Our weeping points forward to the gladness that is certain to come. Tears don't just fall from our eyes and fall on the ground and then evaporate and there's no more of them. No, when we cry in the midst of our suffering, when we weep under the the weight of this fallen world, we are planting seeds that will one day point back to, that will one day show us that restoration and redemption has been accomplished in full. We are then to suffer. Do you hear that? This is different than any prosperity gospel you'll ever hear. We are to suffer. We are even to cry and to weep, knowing that our weeping will bring forth fruit. My daughter loves taking care of plants. It's a new hobby of hers thanks to COVID-19, and I'm grateful. It definitely makes uh, my flower beds look better. Recently, she started planting daisy seeds in her little flower pot. She and Mama were real careful to scatter the seeds just in the right places so that they wouldn't be too crowded together. They gently covered them over with soil, and day after day, Abigail faithfully goes out. She carries her her little tiny water pail. Her eyes scan over the soil looking for sprouts. Day one, nothing. She waters And moves her pot more into the sunlight so there's more direct sunshine. Day two, nothing. Day three, nothing. She stoops down and she gently pulls out the the leaves and the little debris that has fallen into her little flower pot. Day four, nothing. We tell her, hey, there's a storm coming. You might want to move your pot inside so the wind doesn't topple it over. And so she pulls it inside. She takes care of it. She even speaks to it before bed. The beginning of day six, she puts it back out in hopes that the sun will faithfully keep shining down on it and that her her seeds will one day blossom. Day six, she goes out, still nothing, but she waits. And then day seven, she wakes up early, she goes through her same routine. She unlocks the front door, she runs outside excitedly, she stoops down and she looks in close. And then she cries out, there's green! There's a sprout. Well, sure enough, we go outside and we look and she sees the sprout. And now she goes out day after day because she knows that she planted seeds and that they would sprout. Now they sprouted and she trusts that they will bloom. And she's going out day after day after day anticipating her daisies to blossom and bloom and flower. And she's driven by the joy of thinking of what it, those pretty, beautiful daisies will look like when they finally blossom. My friends, that's the life of a Christian. We are those who plant in pain. We plant in sorrow. We cry seeds of mourning. And we go out day after day after day looking for sprouts that our mourning hasn't been forgotten, looking for any kind of hope that the seeds that we have planted are beginning to show just a little growth. And one day, 
We will come out to see that the seeds have not only sprouted, but that they've bloomed and blossomed. And we will be able to see the beautiful flowers of God's providence and love and care and redemption. In Scripture, if you study this theme of sowing seeds, you'll find that it often describes those who live in faith and who continue living in faith, even when it is difficult. You can see that like in Hosea 10, 12, where he tells the people to sow righteousness, to sow faithfulness. And as God's people, we, we do what we can to obey God. We trust Him. We fight for faith and we sow every day in faith. We trust God through it all. If you have ever wept under the weight of this world's brokenness while fighting to trust in the promises of God, you have not been unfaithful. You have been planting. If you have ever wept beside a spouse's hospital bed while casting your hope on Jesus, your tears have been seeds that will one day sprout into joy. If you have ever held your child's hand and cried out and begged to God to steady your faith, every tear that fell fell as a deposit of the happy singing that is to come. Do not be ashamed of your tears. It is because of your tears that you will one day feel the gentle hand of God wiping them away. It is because of the backdrop of suffering that we will understand the beautiful diamond of restoration. In God's promise of restoration, the heavy, burdensome seed bags that we carry as we're sowing our suffering into the ground, one day you will carry sheaves of singing into the holy city of God. We weep much now, knowing that our joy will be greater than all of our weeping. And in this we hear a foreshadowing of Paul's comfort. The sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. I just think that's incredible. Do you know how heavy it has been for Nick and Brittany? There's not one of us that could even possibly imagine what kind of, what kind of pain they have gone through. The burden of suffering, the heartache, the heartbreaking, the, the silent crying out in the night. And yet, according to Paul, even that doesn't compare to the great glory that awaits them when Christ returns and brings redemption. You may know that suffering as you've buried a loved one, as you've buried a a friend, as you've watched family members die, and my friends, not even the worst kind of suffering can compare to the redemption that's to come in Jesus Christ. How could anyone dare to have such hope? You know, the world thinks us rather foolish for this. They think we have a crutch in Jesus. So it's worth asking, what's the basis of our hope? How do we know that God will turn our tearful tears, our our, uh, painful tears, into a harvest of singing? How do we know that God will turn our suffering into joy? Well, we have this hope because of our Savior, Jesus Christ. He stepped into humanity's sorrow and brokenness. He raised the dead. He caused the lame to walk. He made the blind to see. And He gave us a glimpse of the restoration to come that was coming in Him. And then He, as the perfect Son of God, willingly took our brokenness, our sins, our wounds, our suffering on Himself. In looking forward to his death, Jesus borrowed the seed metaphor once again. If you turn to John chapter 12, verse 24, here's how he describes his own forthcoming death. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Now in this, Jesus depicts his dying as something that God is going to use to bring forth a harvest. Jesus sees sees himself as this sorrowful man of sorrow, as a sorrowful seed falling to the ground, dying, so that you and I could have new life. And that's exactly what happened. Like a seed, he died. He was buried. And then three days later, he came forth with new life. His resurrection has guaranteed our resurrection. 
His new life has guaranteed our new life. He has secured it for us. And as he has been the seed that was dead and buried and now has sprung forth, we are like branches bearing fruit in the vine of his love and grace. The logic of our faith is simple, but it's profound. If God can turn something as broken and and as bad as a crucifixion into a seed that sprouts new life, then he can turn something like a funeral, like a hospital bed, like a chronic illness, like an autoimmune disease, like a job loss, like the painful suffering of a child. And he can cause them to sprout forth the fruit of his promises. Now, speaking of our hope in the resurrection, we may be like those who dream. But our dream of restoration will come true. These seeds will sprout and we will sing and we will cry out in joy. And on that day, the nations will say of us, of those of you who have suffered, the Lord has done great things for them. It's incredible and it gives my mind incredible hope and peace to think that someone like Nick and Brittany who are suffering with their daughter, whose daughter has suffered, to think that someone like our widows here at Grace Church, to think of someone like the mothers who have lost children in our church, to think that those who have lost parents, that one day they themselves, with all their bitter suffering that they've undergone, with all the hardships, with all the tears that they've wept, that one day they themselves will say, will not just say it in a mumbled voice, but will cry it out. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad to think that one day Myla Harp will sing out loud, the Lord has done great things for us, and we are glad. That is where we put our faith and hope, that Jesus is bringing back the world that God intended it to be, that Jesus is renewing the earth, that Jesus, because of his death and resurrection, has promised a new life, and we are those who have hope, who weep and grieve, but not as those who grieve without hope. In light of this great truth, we have an encouragement to continue on. We praise God for the restoration that has already come in Jesus. We weep genuine, sincere tears in suffering, trusting that God remembers each one that falls and that he is turning them into joy-sprouting seeds. And we pray for the harvest of joy that's to come. We pray for it every day. We pray that today might be the day that God sends his son back, that tomorrow might be the day that Jesus sends back, that, it, it sends his son, that God sends his son back. We pray fervently, we pray faithfully, day in and day out. We go out and we check for sprouts, we check for the blooms and the, and the flowers, and we, we long and we hunger and we thirst, and one day our hungering and thirsting will be satisfied. And so we do the hard and arduous work of a faithful, suffering farmer. We plant seeds that come from our own eyes. We watch, we wait, and we trust that the full fruit of redemption is to come. I want to call you who are watching us uh, this morning to, uh, to apply this text in several ways. First off, you may be someone who's suffering. Make Psalm 126 your own. It is a Christian song. Psalm is a psalm that points forward to Jesus as the one who sowed in tears and yet a harvest was made because of his death and resurrection. And you are a part of that harvest that has been brought out of the domain of darkness. And so if you are someone who's suffering and you believe in Jesus, this psalm is your own. If you do not know Jesus, my friends, the world is hard enough And you are still in captivity to sin. You're still a slave to your own sinful desires. My friends, there's no way I can make it easy for you. There's no way I can snap my fingers and bring you out of that. There's nothing I or you can do except for you to put your trust fully in Jesus. To hope in him and hope in nothing else. You can do that today. And if you need help doing that, we want you to call us. We want you to reach out to us. But it's just simply by faith, simply by trusting, by, by rejecting all the other things that you've trusted in, 
nothing else, your money, your job, your career, your family, your loved ones, none of them can turn back the curse. None of them can bring renewal and restoration. Only Jesus can do that. It's by faith in him that you can be brought out of the, out of the domain of darkness and into the mar- marvelous light. It's only in him that one day the heavens will split open and the heavens and the earth will be made new because of the Son of Man to whom belongs all dominion in heaven and on earth. Let me pray for you. Father God, I pray for the people watching. I pray for those who know you and I pray for those who don't. God, I pray that through this you will help us to trust in Jesus. Father, for those who don't know you, I pray that right now they'll just stop the video, that they'll pray and they'll ask you, Father, to help their unbelief, Father, to help them stand firm, God, to help them have a trust that is only in Jesus, to repent of their sins, as hard as that's going to be, Father, for them to leave all these other gods and all these other hopes that they've had, to, to leave all their other foundations and to have only one foundation in Jesus. Lord, help them right now to reject all the other things upon which they have built their life and to to look to Jesus as the rock and founder alone. Father, we pray for Nick and Brittany. We pray for Mila to be healed. God, we pray for your goodness to rain down. We pray that in this time that the nations will look at this story and say, the Lord has done great things for them. And yet, Lord, we know that there's a day coming that Mila herself will be raised up from bed, that she will sing, that she will dance. And she herself will say, the Lord has done great things for me, and I am glad. I pray the same that Nick and Brittany will know that that day is coming, that Iris and Richie will know that that day is coming, that Phil and Teresa will know that day is coming. That the tears that they sow into the ground of suffering right now will one day sprout forth a harvest of joy when Jesus returns. Father, we stand with them, we hurt with them, and we pray, Lord, that you will send streams in the deserts of the Negev. Bring restoration to our dry and weary hearts. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. God bless you, friends. Thanks for joining us. Hope you'll join us next week as we Uh, have one more week in Matthew, and then we're going to take a break and study the minor prophets for a little bit of time. And uh, I pray that you will go through your week with God in full faith and trust in Him, and that you will look to the God of your restoration. Love you.